Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the Messy Spirituality Podcast. Hey, this is Jason Elam. Join Lola Robbins, Kyle Butler, and me for the Messy Spirituality Podcast, where we try to empower your spiritual evolution with honest conversation about how to be a better human, taking a critical look at toxic Bible stories, and look behind the headlines for growth opportunities underlying current events. Hey, it's a bisexual hairstylist who escaped a cult, a black mystic, and a recovering Southern Baptist preacher. What could possibly go wrong? Check out the Messy Spirituality Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. If the Bible's got you tied in knots, if you're burdened with religious thoughts, come grab a drink and join the choir. It's Heretic Happy Hour. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heretic Happy Hour podcast. Yes, I'm your host, uh, one of your hosts, Keith Giles, uh, author of the Jesus Un series and the recently released Solo Mysterium, celebrating the beautiful uncertainty of everything. And uh, I hope you're ready to jump into some church trauma because that's what we're talking about today. Uh, but before we do that, let's uh, have our co-hosts uh, introduce themselves. Katie December, Shonda. Um, I guess, Matt, sure. Uh, my name is Katie Valentine, and I am always ready to jump into and right out of, again, church trauma. Yes. I, I'm the founder <laughs> of The Metaphysical Christian. I'm the author of Sex, Slavery, and Self-Control, and I'm ready, ready to tackle this beast. Hey, hey, this is December Rose, the author of The Church Can Go to Hell, because again, but I want you to overcome brokenness, bitterness, and bondage of church hurt. That's what it's really about. And hopefully you can do that too by listening to The Heretic Happy Hour. Thank you for listening. My name is Shonda Ja. I am the author of the upcoming or recently came out book, uh, Rebels, Despots, and Saints, The Ancestors Who Free Us and the Ancestors We Need to Free. And as far as I can tell, the ancestors are pretty pissed about all the church trauma. So let's figure out what we can do about it. That's right. And I am Matthew DiStefano, author of recently released Learning to Flow, Don't Be a Dick, other books, and yeah, I guess I can introduce myself, huh, Keith? You better not piss off your producer because I have power that you're not aware of. I just can't keep track of, you know, who's doing what and when. That's all, you know. No. This is a moving, yeah, this is a moving show here. So let's get into, I feel like taking a hit off of something, something and letting you guys talk about whatever I might come up with. So let's get into some stone thoughts today. Scientists tell us that 99% of an atom is empty space. And if everything's made up of atoms, what the hell is all this shit? I mean, think about it. Everything we see, everything we touch, everything we feel, all this empty space, well, 99% of it. And yet, it seems so fucking real. <laughs> okay. I'm going to interject. I love how much Katie laughs at this. Isn't that very funny? <laughs> I look forward to these for like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like uh, being in high school all over again. Yeah, it is one of those. It's a paradoxical thing, isn't it? Like, if everything is mostly empty space, then how come we can touch everything? And what's what's all this stuff doing, right? I guess because we're also made of stuff. So we bump into other stuff. 
I'm going to go really philosophical. Like this is basically the question that, well, not a question, but the reality that Plato talks about. Like there's a table, but there's not really a table. There's the idea of the table. Right. And you can touch it. He just didn't know about subatomic particles, which Stone Matt does. Uh, I don't even know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, if everything is made up of atoms, then what really, I don't know. Look, we're just all atoms walking around painted in different colors uh, with different personalities and all that other good stuff. I don't really know. I I gotta, I need to be smoking with you so I could be with you on, (laughs) on the train of thought that you're on so that we could talk. You know what I'm saying? I feel like I'm too far below the firmament that you was on when you said that. And I need a blunt to rise up to your level. <laughs> the invitation is always open. I will roll you a blunt and you can come smoke one with me and Callie. Okay. That's beautiful. <laughs> you all know about the Buddhist monk who goes and orders a hot dog at the hot dog stand and the guy says, what kind of hot dog do you want? And he says, make me one with everything. Make me one with everything. Well, yeah, I uh, felt like that was yeah. implied, but thank you yes. for explaining my joke. No, it took me a minute. I'm still laughing. Yeah. 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 No, I, <laughs> well, uh, I needed that explanation. <laughs> I, I didn't need it. Well, that just makes me sad. Y'all are crappy Buddhists. That's all I can say. Make me one with mm-hmm. everything. Yeah. Yes. yes. I, I needed that explanation. Thank you so much. <laughs> horrible, horrible Buddhists. Um, yeah. That's all I got to say about Matt Stone thoughts. Wow. <laughs> Going directly from our deep philosophical question into also the world of um, deep thoughts with poetry. We have a really, really fun heretic of the week. You're going to really enjoy this. Um, those of you who may be like me and you prefer a novel over poetry, go ahead and give this a listen because we think that this is just going to change your mind with our wonderful Canadian heretic of the week. It's the heretic of the week. And I'm uh, Daryl Epp. You're a heretic of the week. Hi, Hi Daryl. Daryl, <laughs> my friend, welcome. This is really exciting. It's good to have you uh, as our heretic of the week on the podcast. If you don't know, Daryl and I know each other. We've known each other for a while now. We even used to co-host a little podcast together called Imaginary Lines. So um, I know Daryl fairly well, but um, I'm thinking most of my listeners or our listeners uh, to this podcast probably do not. So uh, Daryl. I guess we should start the way we kind of always do and ask uh, all of our heretics of the week uh, the question of why why is it that some people might call you a heretic? I don't know if they do or not, but why might they? If, if Has that ever happened to you or why would they call you a heretic? Well, maybe they'll start after today once the word gets out. Um, but uh, yeah, I'm grateful to be here. And um, when I first hear that question, I end up thinking about my ancestors it's obviously, I can't hide that I have a very Mennonite name. And sometimes I think about the debt that we owe to our ancestors. I actually sometimes wonder what they would think about me. And um, up until 1925, they lived in a very uh, closed community without any sort of diversity. And everyone was on the same page. So obviously... Um, I guess most of most of my day wouldn't make very much sense of them. And um, I wonder not only that they might think I'm a heretic, but that they would think I'm a lunatic in the sense that my, my ancestors were outside from sunup till sundown. And now today we avoid sunlight and stay inside with artificial light. And um, 
all those things. So um, the, the way of life they had going really changed uh, um, after the revolution when they had to uh, reinvent themselves um, on the other side of the planet. And um, that's all kind of, and and the way they lived is kind of gone. So um, they might call me a heretic. I hope they would be sort of generous and grading on a curve, but um, that's something I kind of think about. I love that. I love that. And so I've got to say, I was I I was looking up uh, all of your beautiful poetry, but when I googled you. My phone auto-corrected, and I imagine that you're used to people uh, seeing you and being like, oh, you're not Daryl Ups after all. Um, so I wanted to say, I figured out my mistake early on, found your amazing material. Wait, wait, uh, what did it auto-correct to? Daryl Epps, who is a famous African-American actor. Oh, fantastic! Epps with an S. Got it. With an S, yeah. Has that happened to you before, Daryl? Have you shown up for an interview and they're like, oh, you were not who we were expecting? <laughs> Actually, it's funny because um, if you go back to the time of Martin Luther, uh, my name was sort of uh, Von Epp and they dropped that. And Epps is a popular African-American name in uh, America, but that doesn't happen here. And um, where I am, if you meet like a black person, there's a good chance that they're like a, a, a francophone. So, so it's a bit different. So, you know, this is the first time I've talked to um to uh, Americans for a while. So, um, that We're might sorry. happen if I was in the case more. Yeah, but uh, yeah. Okay, so I am the first who's done that to you. Um, I think so. Although I know that there there are like Omar Epps people like yep. that. Yeah, um, legendary. But, there are legendary Eppses out there, but I'm excited to be talking to a legendary Epp. So, as you've been on this heretical journey. What got you from non-heretic to heretic status? How did you get from there to here? Well, I mean, my life hasn't been very much of a straight line, you you might say. And um, I guess this sounds corny and not really unique, but I guess I found some aspects of my childhood kind of uh, confining and wanted to rebel against that. And, um, you know move to the big city, have a different life. And um, now I seem to have kind of gone in a circle where um, I'm, I'm sort of grateful for my heritage and my upbringing and see it in a different light. Now that I'm just that much closer to the grave, I have a different perspective. But um, I was always really looking forward to um, uh, moving out of my parents' house just so I could sleep in on Sundays. That was a big motivating factor, being able to sleep in on Sundays. Yes. Wait, wait, what That's time wonderful. did the nights go to church? Like, how early was it? Uh, well, first off, let's say three or four times a week. Oof, yeah. So which day? Um, Sunday, Sunday night, Wednesday, Friday. So I guess I caused my parents like a lot of pain by not wanting to, about wanting to live a bit differently and... Um, so there was some rough patches there. And also, I remember when I was a kid, like the one time they were worried I was uh, possessed by demons and wanted to call an exorcist on me, which was kind of annoying. Because, <laughs> you know, I'm possessed by a demon who makes me sleep in, you know. Uh, <laughs> Does, 
So there's like, you know, there's different kinds of Mennonites. So were you in a, a really old school with like kind of the, the plain dress and minimal technology? Right. Actually, that's another pe- uh, problem that I encounter more than the Epps thing. You know, like, I'm not sure if Omar Epps ever gets people thinking that he's, that he's me. But, um, <laughs> but one pet peeve I did have when I was a kid that did bug me, where when I was a kid, um, Harrison Ford made that movie called Witness. Yes. Where uh, people always said, yo, Daryl, you're lying. I've seen you in a car. How can you be a Mennonite? And um, <laughs> I'm not really here on earth to fight anti-Mennonite prejudice. But <laughs> people don't even know that, that like, Mennonites are named after a guy who, who's, yeah. whose name was Menno. And, 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 you know, like uh, about two hours from my house is Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where most of the old order Mennonites on the planet live. And um, about 45 minutes from my house is Kitchener, Waterloo, St. Jacobs, Ontario, where they have old order Mennonites who just use carriages. And um, at the start of the 20th century, they had Mennonites who said, um, you can't be a Mennonite and drive a car. Then there was another uh, heretical sect who said, you could still be a Mennonite and have your Mennonite membership card and, and have a car as long as you spray painted all the chrome black. The way Jesus would want. Yeah. Because otherwise, <laughs> because chrome was reflective, that was flashy and Too drawing flashy. attention to yourself. Mm-hmm. My parents were, were uh, Mennonite Brethren, which was a denomination that started in Russia, north of the Black Sea. And Mennonite Brethren were for people who thought Mennonites weren't strict enough. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Because basically, the, the uh, Mennonites north of the... Well, uh, basically, this isn't going the way I thought it would go. <laughs> Thanks for the history lesson. This is wonderful. I'm fascinating. Yeah. But what happened was, during all of the, the, the Reformation Wars that allegedly ended with the Treaty of Westphalia, one thing Catholics and Anglicans and Protestants could all agree on was killing Mennonites. So... Mm. So basically, if you, if you gave me a DNA test, it might say my DNA was like Frisian from Frisia, but Catherine the Great gave the Mennonite sanctuary because she wanted their farming technology because they had these uh, uh, secret methods of increasing crop yields where they could drastically increase the amount of bushels of wheat you could get per acre. So um, Catherine the Great gave them sanctuary but they were so good at increasing crop yields, they began to get a bit prosperous and some sort of issues with luxury and wealth came in, which is where the Mennonite brethren came in. And then, you know, they had church splits over whether you could be a Mennonite and smoke cigarettes or not, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, of course, in 1925, Captain Grace Promise was canceled. So then uh, my ancestors went to Manitoba where um, I guess you might say Winkler, Manitoba is kind of like uh, Goshen, Indiana or something, where there's a lot of Mennonites there. So um, it's kind of funny. Um, in Hamilton, Ontario, there's two Mennonites. There's me and Tim. And then <laughs> if you go to Winkler, Manitoba, that, uh, there's a population of 50,000 people in this town, and there's about 600 S. Wow. Hey, so uh, Daryl, yeah, I wanted to, I want to ask you, um, 
hopefully to pull us out of this into sort of you and where you are right now. So you talk a little bit about being, having this rebellious spirit, you know, younger in your younger days. And you've kind of now moved away from some of the, some of those things that were instilled in you when you were young and your parents and things like that. And so I, I know that one of the ways your rebellion has manifest has been in poetry and in your writing. And I think that's actually one of the most beautiful and interesting things about the way, some of the ways you've expressed that and communicated that. So can you talk a little bit about that and how poetry sort of became this? You found your voice through poetry and how you have you, the way you use poetry to kind of express some of the things that you've seen and experienced, um, in, in this kind of a unique way. And again, you have a book coming out. So we're excited about that as well. So talk to, talk to us a little bit about that on the poetry side of things. This kind of makes you wonder about how much of your life is in your control and how much isn't because basically I wanted to be a writer pretty much the same time I learned how to read where mm -hmm. I actually remember seeing books on a shelf and it had this magical glamour for me. And I thought, wouldn't that be great to have a book on a shelf? And um, my parents are intelligent and they're sort of more on the verbal side where uh, they're, people, they're, they're people people. So they really had a hard time dealing with a, a kid who was sort of on the creative introspective side. And um, so the answer to your question is it just happened when I was five. And wow. I really do do remember like, and this again is corny, reading a short story by Ray Bradbury and being surprised by the ending and thinking, wouldn't it be great to someday do that to someone else, you know? And then so in the 90s, I worked in the, in the theater, went bankrupt doing that, went bankrupt <laughs> a few more times. And when I went to poetry, that's when everything clicked. And it turned... I mean, that's where the money is. We all know that. Yeah, you got to follow the money. I mean, poetry. I didn't, but I'm happy to be enlightened. Yes. Yeah. Well, it's kind of funny. Um, Orson Welles once said, I started at the top and worked my way all the way down. Yeah. And that's kind of been my goal, and I'm getting there. Good. Um, and it turned out when I went to poetry, everything clicked, and I said, okay, let's lead into this. And it turns out, I it seems to me, poetry helps to make you a more spiritual person whether the poem's good or not, because it forces you to focus your energy on something that doesn't contribute to the GDP very much. So when you write a poem, you have to be more interested in your surroundings than the average citizen. And that forces you to be more grateful, which is kind of where this all may be going a circle. Wow. I just got, I, I just want to share that I love that particularly because we were just talking about how my father was a great photographer and I had just been saying, I think it's part of what contributed to him being a man of generosity and gratitude because he was looking at the world through a different lens. I think that's a beautiful reflection on poetry. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. That, um, and that's one thing I'm really serious about, where um, in our culture, if you go to the internet, which is really popular with the kids these days, I hear, <laughs> yeah, I hear that. Um, <laughs> or if you go to a mall, you will be given all these opportunities to feel fr fearful, agitated, greedy, acquisitive, so on and so on. But you won't be given any opportunities to be grateful. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, St. Paul said, I've trained myself to be content in all circumstances. And imagine what would happen to the economy if that caught on, right? Mm -hmm. Right. 
marketing doesn't work if everybody's happy with what they have. It's true. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask, is that in any way connected? I know you've got a book coming out. Is that theme or does that theme around gratitude? Does that theme around, uh, around appreciating what's in our midst instead of longing for what we don't have? Does that show up in the book? Or if not, what does? And throw in the title while you're at it. Okay, the, the title of my book is called Permanent Smoke. And it's called that partially because I live in sort of like a post-industrial uh, Pittsburgh kind of place. And um, also because kind of about memory and the ephemeral and like what's ephemeral and what isn't. So these concerns, I always kind of hit them from the side because my dad is still holding out hope that I'll be a preacher someday. And I have this thing where as soon as uh, I can't really process sermons, they just, I just blot them out and they don't stick in my head. So I thought if I preach about these things that are important to me, people will just blot it out. But if it's wrapped up in a package of art, hopefully people read the book and then maybe a month later, these things will bear fruit in their minds, sort of. So I think if people, to read a poem, it kind of flexes the same muscles you need to write one. So I'm thinking if people actually process the stuff and do their part, it might make them want to um, pay more attention to the ligaments of their day and the sensory data that their day is built out of. And then Bob's your uncle right there. I'm, you know, I'm sensing the sort of threads of spirituality in the process that you're talking about and in, in the process of slowing down and just encountering. I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about your, your spirituality now, what that looks like. Yeah, sure. My rebellion had a lot to do with uh, wanting to sleep in. And now that I'm old, <laughs> I like to get up early and go to bed <laughs> early. Irony. So, that issue, so that issue kind of re, kind of resolved itself. So I'm like, you know, why fight it? Just like, just like, just like lead into it. Like, you know, so now I uh, wake up at f- uh, five, like my ancestors did. So I'm kind of back on the team. Um, <laughs> it's hard. And, it's like, it's like uh, your program. It's hard coded into your brain and your DNA. Well, right? you had a need that was met. And once the need was met, you could get up early, you know? Yeah. And also in terms of spirituality, your question there, I think there's a lot of different ways I could answer that. But for me, the first word that comes to mind would be marriage. Because basically, I really kind of lucked out with that. So my spirituality kind of resolved around, uh, uh, I guess, my wife. So it seems like at the end of every day, my wife will sort of uh, say that we should uh, mention things that we're grateful for. So uh, that's it. So, um, so for example, sometimes we'll be getting ready for bed, and then uh, my wife might say, hey, maybe we should stop and um, thank God that we don't live in a war zone. And it's kind of funny because she's right, but nobody does that. And then she'll say, we should thank God for peaches because we live near the Niagara Fruit Belt where we have peaches, pears, plums. And um, she's like, peaches are really kick-ass. We should thank God, right? (laughs) And, you know, she's right, but like nobody does that. And um, so... I guess, like, that's my answer. Like, uh, if you have a chance, like, you know, to marry, like, my wife or a clone <laughs> of my wife, that's that's the way to go. Yeah. That's, that's the path to enlightenment, huh? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Very much so, yeah. 
Um, well, I guess, can you talk a little bit about the, yeah, the, the book, uh, you mentioned the name Permanent Smoke. Uh, it's gonna, it's, uh, I don't know if it's gonna be out or not by the time we air this, but, um, uh, is there again a theme in that book? Cause it's not your first book of poetry, right? It's, it's actually, it's the first one you're gonna be publishing, uh, here in the States with choir, but you, you've done several other books before this. So what, what sets this book apart maybe from the other ones? Yeah, this is my fifth book, but I guess as far as America will go, this is the first time that I've had a book that was well distributed in the States. Basically, you know, uh, if you ask Michael Crichton what his book is about, it's really easy for him to answer. Right. Um, and that's called high concept. When you can say in one sense, it's like Westworld, but, but with dinosaurs. <laughs> So if you were to write a book that's 400 pages and you can summarize it in one sentence, that's how you get to be successful. For me, whenever I'm writing a book, I never know what the book is about until it's over. And um, I always think if I'm surprised, there's a better chance the reader is surprised. My new book, uh, 25% of it is about Barton Street, which is the longest street in Hamilton, where they used to have jobs there, and now they don't. So... Um, What's happened there has, has happened in other places. So I wanted to talk about that a bit. So it's sort of about what do you do when the manufacturing jobs are gone, uh, which I think is important to talk about. And um, there's, so there's one section about the book where I can say this is about something. And then the rest of the book is sort of about, hopefully the reader can tell me. So uh, I don't want to put you on the spot here, Daryl, but... Um... But I was wondering, do you think you have a, a shorter poem from the new book that you could share with us? So I have one, I have one poem handy. And in the, interest, in the interest of time, is I don't think it's in the new book, but it's really representative of the flavor. So we can just go with that, maybe? Sure, whatever you tell, whatever you want to do. <laughs> okay, so um, read the book Permanent Smoke for more of the same uh, tone. This is called Weather Report. Unnoticed, grace rolls in from the northwest, raining down on rug and tugs and cemeteries, the tenements with the asbestos and the live wires. That rich duke's house, they turned into a museum. Shawarma huts and money marts, raining down on the just and unjust with no questions asked. Anil Verma scratches to win like his life depends on it. Over his shoulder, his shadow is laughing at him. Moisha gets tagged by the new red light cameras. Adrian thinks of going back to school for something practical. And when things get tight, everybody stares into a glowing screen. We have at least that much in common. Dean's on his knees again, hoping Jesus grades on a curve. Zero percent financing, half off, one day only. It's raining harder now down the graffiti-stained plywood where the windows used to be. And something about how the walls meet the roof makes me weepy, jittery. Something is up tonight. We tighten our grip on our remote controls. Grace comes to town, and we don't even hit pause. As it rains all the way to the Erie Canal and down on a drafty row house, sublet to a sensitive soul, riding a crest of bad luck. Next to his toilets, a million-selling how-to book called Your Best Life Now. The author's incisors twinkle like stars. Thank you so much. Uh, I, yeah, that was beautiful. 
very excited about uh, this new book and people getting a chance to experience it. And uh, yeah, Daryl, I, I really appreciate you, man. I, I, every time I talk to you, I feel smarter. <laughs> when when does the new book? Um, what's the drop date? The drop date is October fourth. Wow! And October fourth, awesome. So yeah, this will. So I think this the most likely most likely this will everyone will be hearing this, and the book will be available by the time that you're hearing it. And so, what's what's the best place for people to find you, Daryl? Are you on social media? Email? Yeah. Um, Go to the choir website. I'm on Twitter pretty much all day and my, <laughs> yeah. and my Twitter handle is my name, Daryl Epp. Um, so that's probably the best way to find me. The book is on Amazon. I'm on Facebook as Daryl Epp. But yeah, uh, if people want to reach out to me on, on Twitter, that's great. Um, but uh, yeah, so I'm grateful to be published by Choir as opposed to the uh, previous four publishers. Um, so I'm going <laughs> to so uh, moving right along, we'll see what happens. Yeah, but it's great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, we're super excited to have you with us, Daryl. Thank you so much. And uh, I'm excited for people, like I said, to read your book. And I do recommend, by the way, if you're on Twitter, uh, give Daryl a follow. It's extremely entertaining. You'll, you'll learn a lot. Just don't add an S when you're looking for That's a right. <laughs> Yeah, Singular. Also I, also, I sort of have to plug uh, poetry in general. Um, get my poetry first, but reading <laughs> poetry... Besides me, it's also okay. Because, um, you know, um, 30% of the Bible is poetry, and it's no mystery that whenever Moses or David or Jesus wanted you to really, really pay attention, they switched to poetry. And certainly the poetry of Homer and Isaiah have lasted uh, 3,000 years. And um, will my clever tweets be as uh, successful in that regard? I, you know, it's easy to think that because we have Velcro and the internet, we have fundamentally changed. Um, but when you read poetry, you're sort of reminded of things that do not change. We have these same desires and yearning for the transcendental. And um, I think it's, a, you know, I think anybody would, would benefit from reading and writing poetry, you know? Yeah, mm -hmm. absolutely. That's awesome. Well, Daryl, thank you so much, man. Thanks a lot. Thank you for being here. Wow. Well, that was great. Uh, Daryl, thank you so much for being our Heretic of the Week. And uh, it's wonderful to be able to uh, have someone who you know, who's a friend, sit in the Heretic chair for an episode. So thanks so much, Daryl. He was super fun. And uh, I loved his, his foray into Mennonitism and also into his live poetry reading. I can't wait to read this new book. I also thought he was hilarious, but in a very dry wit way, which is kind of what you expect from a poet. Um, while you're tuned in, wanted to remind you and encourage you to rate and review us on iTunes. It really helps us as far as people getting to learn about us. It's how people like you get to connect with people like us. So please do take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. Hey, y'all, we're getting ready to talk about some pretty heavy stuff. We always have a good time while we do it, but just know that this is about church trauma. So protect your peace at all costs. If you're hearing anything or experiencing anything while listening to us that doesn't make you feel great, grand, good, and ready to conquer the world, then feel free to change the channel. But come back next time because we'll be on to something else. Okay, but protect your peace. Yeah, absolutely. 
And if you're in need of some support or counseling, you can always reach out to the Rape, Abuse, and Incest National Network at www.rainn.org, or you can call 1-800-656-4673. Yeah. Well, so for our third, right, so third episode in this series on church trauma, we thought it was really important to talk about, sadly, I hate to say it, but sort of one of our own, you know, because it's easy to... It's easier, I guess, in some ways to talk about, well, those other guys, you know, they have theology we don't necessarily agree with. They have certain views on things we don't like. And then, you know, then when they, then when they fail, it's like, aha, see, I knew it. But then when it's somebody that you looked up to and respected and maybe even had them, you know, on your podcast a couple of times, maybe they wrote the forward to your book or something. And then, you know, they, they have something like this happen. Um, then it really hurts. I mean, it, I mean, it always hurts because you know there are victims, you know, people are being abused, you know, people are suffering. But it, I think there's just this extra measure of like, you know, disbelief, like, how could this be? At least that's how I felt um, when Bruxy Cavey, when it came out that Bruxy Cavey, who's a pastor of a very large church called The Meeting House in, uh, in Hamilton in Canada, came out initially that um, there was a woman who had come forward to the church and had accused him of sexual abuse. The church did a third-party independent investigation. Uh, Bruxy stepped down during that time. And uh, then it did come out uh, that the, they did find that, um, that, yes, indeed, something had happened that wasn't right. Although initially they didn't call it sexual abuse, although later they did come back and change change that. And Bruxy initially wrote a statement on his website, which he's not taken down. But initially, he had basically said that um, he had had an affair. That's the way he framed it. Uh, But fast forward a little bit long, a couple of months later, it turns out two other women came forward and said that they also had experienced um, this kind of behavior from Bruxy. And one of the women was a minor at the time. And um, so, yeah, it just got worse and worse and worse. And Bruxy is someone, you know, full disclosure, I, someone I looked up to. Uh, I, had, I had done some things with him in the past. He actually did write the forward to one of my books, which I later had to replace. Um, so it was, it was painful. And, um, and there's just a measure of disbelief, you know, like you just don't think that someone that you, you think you know fairly well is capable of such a thing, right? I would never in a million years have guessed uh, that Bruxy would have done something like this. And, um, and he was the pastor of the church? Yes, he was the lead pastor, pastor of the church. Okay. He was the face of the church. He's, he was an author. He wrote several books um, that did, did fairly well. Uh, you know, he was an Anabaptist, kind of a, you know, if you see pictures of him, we watch little video clips of him, you know, he's this kind of roly-poly teddy bear kind of guy, dresses like a hippie. It's really, you know, Anabaptist, peace-loving, Jesus-y kind of guy. Yeah, you just would think, yeah, you know, the, someone like that is never going to do something like that. So. Sad. So I don't know. Uh, I, I guess the thing. I guess the thing about Bruxy, and there are some distinctives we can talk about uh, in this case that are different than so many of the others we covered uh, to this point in the series. But um, I mean, I mean, I guess in the way the church itself handled it, I think was better. They didn't deny it. They didn't blame the woman. Um, they didn't accuse the woman of trying to, you know, uh, attack him. They didn't call her a Jezebel. You know, they, they took her word seriously. They got an independent body to, uh, to investigate. And by the way, when they found, when the church found out that there was a minor involved, 
they called the police, which uh, I don't think I've heard in the other cases that I've seen um, the churches being willing to go straight to the police and say, this was a crime and we're going to report it. Yeah, and I'm on I'm on the church website right now. So as far as I can tell, so this is the the church is called the Meeting House, and it's part of the Brethren community. Yes. and they they changed their name in Canada, I guess. I don't know, if more updated. But even on their website right now, they have a victim advocacy link, and so they're they're it seems like they're being very public about it, very straightforward, um, and and caring for victims from the surface. Yeah, yeah, that part was good. Although I think initially. Some of the people, there was a little bit of additional drama that went on when they first had the independent investigators look into it and they had their findings and then they refused to call it sexual abuse. Um, some of the other pastors on staff at the meeting house resigned in protest over that. Um, and as far as I know, they're still not, they, they have left and not come back. Um, and maybe that was part of what it took for them to take it more seriously to say, okay, I think the, the church's initial reaction was, well, we don't, we don't call it sexual abuse because the independent investigators didn't use that term. So because they didn't use that term, we're not going to use that term. Um, but again, after, I think probably after the two other women uh, came forward, then it became obvious that, okay, yeah, there's a pattern here. And uh, they were dealing with someone who was a predator. So yeah, very, very sad. I, I don't know. I think some of the same things are, in play, right? I think whenever you have somebody who is in a, in a position of authority, um, they're given a whole lot of rope. <laughs> and, and I think this is actually one of the things that the church itself also looking at their website, I, I think they, they issued a statement saying that the church is re, um, rethinking the way they, the way their, um, structure of the, of the church works to make it more of a shared, uh, authority structure rather than a top-down authority structure um, in hopes of, you know, cutting something like this off at the past next time and um, seeing the dangers of there being, you know, Bruxy having basically as senior pastor a whole lot of power and autonomy. So they want to make some shifts and changes. And I think that's good. I think if they're willing to recognize that they need to do that for the safety of their members, then that's a good thing. Yeah, I- I'm, I'm, I'm curious by one language. I mean, you know, on the surface, this church looks like it's, I mean, they're, they're handling it really in a healthy way. It's interesting. All the reading I did, like Brexy and other leaders are called the overseers of the church. This is a mentality that's really problematic. <clears throat> yeah. I hate to have church leadership called overseers. So I'm kind of curious if that's maybe part of the, um, feeding into the abuse, right? Like an overseer has. Uh, I mean, and obviously it's uh, obviously this is a slave term and it was in the ancient world too. So I'm curious that they chose it, but that gives you, uh, implies unbridled power. Yeah. Well, the, and then they say in the statement, there's a quote here, they say power should never be top down. We want to reorganize our accountability. So there's a shared power approach. Although in that statement, the person who said that is identified as a church overseer. <laughs> so they're still, Seems like they're not, they're still trying to wrestle with this whole overseer thing. But again, and who knows where they'll land, but I, I, I hope they are serious about reorganizing and rethinking uh, accountability structures. So this is, this is a subject we haven't had a chance to talk about a ton, but, um, I don't know if you all remember, I think it was about 10 years ago, there was a big study that came out that showed when and I want to be really clear, this is not universally the case. We can think of examples to the contrary, but 
when women are in positions of authority, and that's not just in the church, that's politically, that's um, in terms of governance, that all forms of, what do you call it, um, of malfeasance, of misbehavior, of illegality decline. I wouldn't argue that's because women are more moral so much as women can't get away with as much shit. And I think it's really interesting to think about what it means to eliminate hierarchy in ways that create equality and positions of authority for women in light of the fact that a patriarchal society doesn't let women get away with as much. And so I think it's really interesting the ways that patriarchy, by which I just mean like the assumption that men should be in power, um, whether consciously or unconsciously, that being the functioning assumption, the way that that plays into all the um, scandals we've talked about so far, and whether gender anarchy might make a difference in addressing some of those problems. I just wanted to throw that into the ring for conversation. I like that phrase, gender anarchy. Uh, <laughs> but I'm going to push back on you. I do I do think that women have, I do think we have more integrity. <laughs> I do think, I, I'm going to push back. I, I think, look, I, look, not all men are, are dogs and not all men are bad, but I think that all forms of malfeasance decrease under the leadership of women because we have greater self-control. We don't walk as much as our, in our ego because we can't afford to. So to the extent that you were saying we're not, we can't, we don't have as much runway to fuck up like, like men do. That's true. But I think that we are conditioned to please. And I think that, uh, uh, plays a role in it too. You know what I'm saying? I think that we're conditioned to serve. I think that plays a role in it too. And I think the structure of a woman emotionally, intellectually, and the race that she is shaped by society, in my personal opinion, causes her to lead large organizations better. Just because we're nurturers by nature and and we have a different way that we look at things and handle things. I'm not saying that women are better than men. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying um, that is if, if a woman is leading an organization of a thousand employees, she's probably not sleeping with two thirds of them, like some of these men. And if she is, um, sleeping with them, with them, um, she done got her shit sewed together. Ain't nobody finna tell it. She ain't so messy, but I was just saying, you know, I'm just playing on that kind of sort of playing, not really, but kind of mostly playing. But yeah, I think, I think, I think that there is something to that. And I think it's just the nature of a woman, how she's built. And that it plays. This is why, this is why it's important that more women are in leadership for those reasons, because we're a different kind of gatekeeper. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying that there ain't women out here that ain't tripping and skipping and dipping and, and all this other stuff. We, we, they be doing stuff, but not on that level. And maybe because, maybe because we, we can't by virtue of the systems that are set up, but mostly because we don't want to. Ain't nobody got time for all that bullshit that these men be doing. We got too many other responsibilities. Love it. We got look. We got kids. We got bills. Ain't nobody got time for that shit. <laughs> um, I'd like to go on the record and say I am not nurtured by. It's not in my nature to be nurturing, <laughs> and everyone close to me can tell you that it's a learned <laughs> skill. It's a learned skill that I have developed, but it does not come to me naturally. But yeah, I mean, I think we've talked about and all of these um, and all of the scandals that I'm um, shared. Shared gender mm-hmm. leadership or gender anarchy is crucial mm-hmm. um, to reducing instances of abuse and abuses of power. I'm, I'm curious. So, so Brexit 
you know, is, was kind of billed as this progressive, at least, at least moderate to progressive, um, person who probably would, I would imagine would, would or did critique other scandals and sexual scandals that came out. So, you know, what are the factors that, that led to this? Cause it is, it is painful when you see it within your tradition or a sister tradition. But I'm also looking at the church web- website. Um, so in addition to the overseer language, there's this, the, the church website bills the meeting house as not being part of a religion, that Jesus didn't come to bring religion, but to tear religion down and that they're not really a church. But uh, like they're obviously a church, and so I think that's a lot. That feels like a lot of lip service. But I can find nothing about like what they believe or social statements about women uh-huh. or about children or about the relationship of gender, or anything like that. So it seems to be focused on like the love and the like doing good in the world. And that's all good, but actually, by not addressing those things, you're giving you're, you're giving more power to p- potential abuse because you're not making a strong statement on equality. Which is showing up in more and more evangelical church websites. They're just yeah. scrapping anything that indicates what they actually believe. Sorry. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I was reading an article. It's an increasing phenomenon because there's a backlash against what they believe. So they just don't tell you what they believe. And people who don't know a ton about church don't know what to look for. And so it, right. that's, no, correct. it's a very ugly and sneaky strategy. So that's not unusual. It's part of a trend. So if you're looking for something that's like, I don't want to go to a church that says that Jesus is the only way. Mm-hmm. Right, so you just don't put that, but you kind mm-hmm. of build it into other other things. So, yeah, that makes sense. What we believe statements are disappearing from websites, right? Yes, because, but it, to me, that is such a stupid way to solve this problem. All you're doing is making it more frustrating for those people and those families that are trying to find a church that they will feel safe at. And so, by not saying on your website that you believe in eternal conscious torment or that Jesus is the only way, or the Bible is the inerrant and infallible word of God, or that gay people are going to burn in hell, or whatever, then, you know what I mean? So, uh, But when somebody gets there to your church, they eventually, it may take them six months, but eventually they're going to bump into stuff and go, oh, oh, great, they do believe this stuff, and now i got to go find another church. It's, it's so, so dumb. There used to be a website that, um, there may be more than one, they used to basically rate and review churches for safety. So like if you were a person of color or if you were gay uh, or things like that. And so they would, there was a place, almost like a Yelp, right? Where people could go and say, yeah, I visited this church and, you know, the pastor says this and they do that and they support this and things like that. And so you could, you would get a ranking system. Um, I can't remember what it was called, but I, I hope this, I hope that that's out there somewhere that people have a resource that they can go to and find find a place that's a little safer for them. Um, I, all, all I was going to interject, going back to uh, the whole question of whether the whole thing about <clears throat> trying to get away from hierarchy and all that stuff. It's difficult, man. It is really, really hard. It's almost a, it is, it is part of human nature to kind of seek that hierarchy and, we kind of typically fall into that kind of stuff. So, you know, I haven't talked about my house church in a long time, but our house church that we had for like 11 years really was non-hierarchical in the sense like Wendy and I started it and met in our, it met in our home, but also rotated in other people's houses too. There were some Sundays we weren't even there. My family wasn't even there, which was good. We did that on purpose sometimes just because, you know, the, the church wasn't my church. I wasn't the pastor. I didn't do all the, I didn't do really any teaching. 
and it was all shared. We did all our, our best to make sure everybody had a, everybody had a chance to share whatever they wanted to share. And that's what we did. We went around, everybody shared whatever they wanted or, or needed to share. And, <clears throat> and that worked fairly well. We also didn't have offices, right? We didn't have elders or overseers or things like that. Cause again, I didn't, I didn't want us to have any sort of like a thing like, Oh, I'm an elder. And then it becomes like there's this implied authority structure, right? Um, I always say like, it, we didn't have, a, but we didn't, we didn't have official elders in our church, but we did. Um, I would say like, if somebody who was part of our group needed prayer for something or needed advice for something or needed, insight about something they knew who to go to right and it wasn't me <laughs> it was there were other people right and so you know what i mean like and that was so it was more of like felt it was more like um experience you know what i mean like people knew like oh you know this person has proven to me that they're safe this person has proven to me that they're wise this person has proven to me that they care about you know everyone in the group and so um so when there was someone who needed to fill so i, I would say we had elders but we, they weren't called that. No one had the title, right? But everyone knew intuitively this person is someone I respect or I look up to, whatever. Um, and, and that, at least in our situation, that worked better because uh, then it was all about, um, like we always had, the, we had this phrase that was something like, um, you know, authority isn't something you, I'm sorry, submission. Submission isn't something you demand, it's something you grant. And so, but, but submission is a bad word. But it's it's the idea of like, you know, I cared about someone's opinion because I respected them and I knew that they loved me and I knew they, they had demonstrated love for everyone else in the, in the group. And so because of that, if they had some wisdom or some advice, I would take it seriously, right? But it wasn't like, hey, everybody, I'm, t- I'm telling you what to do and you need to do it. But it, anyway, having said all that, it was it was a constant struggle and a battle to work against sort of the the expectation of authority, right? That um, certain people are supposed to do certain things and that kind of stuff. So how many um, members did you have, Keith? How many members would show up? Um, in the early days, we had something like 35 or 40. We had, a lot of, we had a lot of families with kids. But over the 11 years, we went through different phases. Probably near the end, we probably had about 15 or so. Um, they were mostly, by the end, it, was, it wasn't families with children. It had become more like millennials. Wendy and I were the old people, uh, and Mary and everybody, most everybody else in the group was single and millennials and that kind of thing. So it kind of fluctuated as far as the makeup. Yeah. Like my, in my experience and my old sociology brain is, uh, trying to recall, but you know, I, I think humans can exist without hierarchy up to a couple of dozen. And after that, we just, I mean, we have to organize ourselves into structure and leadership and different, you know, different gifts. I think churches are the same way. I don't, I don't have a problem with kind of, accountability hierarchy just has to be ethical yeah right it needs to be ethical in my you know my experience but i like when i go into a new group and they're like we do everything by consensus i'm like oh jesus we're not going to get a thing done right exactly yeah <laughs> that's not- i'm like i'm like i'm out i need a leader i need i need a leader i need someone here i can you know we can we can we can do it nicely <laughs> yeah yeah we um yeah when you do when you do things more by kind of like feeling the temperature and where people are going and, you know, if the majority of people are like, yeah, we kind of, I mean, we didn't demand a hundred percent consensus. We, we, we had the expectation like, look, if most people kind of are feeling, are expressing a felt need, like, so for example, this is one of the first times it happened. One of the people in the group just kind of was a young girl 
well, she said, you know, I kind of wish we'd spend more time in kind of in silence or in the meditation or worship time. And then somebody else said, yeah, me too. And then another person said, yeah, I kind of miss that too. And so, you know, when we, when we had people voicing that felt need, now not everybody felt that need, right? But at some point it was sort of like, okay, are you going to be the one who demands that, you know what I mean? Or who's going to, who's going to withhold that from, if most of the people in the group are saying this is a need that they have and you don't particularly need it, but they do, right? So then, you know what I mean? Like you don't want to be the one to kind of do a power play there. So we, we didn't demand 100% consensus on stuff, but we did, we did sort of ask like, you know, just this one time, give it up for them and let them, uh, you know, experience this thing that they're, they're saying that they need out of love for them and that kind of thing. But I think there's a, I think there's, you know, like I agree with you, Katie. I think, I think once you get past a certain number of people, yeah, probably like 15 to 20 people. Once you get above that, it's really difficult to maintain that structure. Um, listening to you and Katie, I was reminded of an instance in First Samuel chapter uh, chapter eight, I think, um, where the people were saying, "Give us a king." Y'all know what I'm talking about? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and they were like, you know, we want a king when it did. So it was set up, you know, where God was there king. God was a king. And God was told Samuel, okay, you know, uh, <laughs> go ahead, do what they say, but um, let them know that um, he's going to take your sons and he's going to tax you and he's going to um, take your daughters and he's going to take the best of your fields and he's going to take a tenth of your grain and your male and your female servants and the best. Of your, and he went on down the line and told them, okay, um, I'm, I'm going to give y'all what you're asking for, but just know it's coming with some consequences. And and I think it's just, you know, from the beginning of time, we, we have always been built to submit to something, something. And I, I, um, I want to believe that is because uh, this is my personal belief. So let me just say that so no one gets offended. Um, I personally believe in, in God, the Father and the Creator. And so it's, it's my personal belief that we're, we're structured and geared toward wanting to have some type of leader because because we have some type of leader and we want some kind of evidence of that in the earth. And we see that in the scripture where the people are saying, give us this king, give us this king. And we see, you know, okay, I'm going to give you the king, but just know that this king is going to, you know, he's going to fuck with y'all. <laughs> and so, uh, but here, here you go. And I think a lot of churches, experience, you know, just by the nature of organization, there needs to be some kind of leadership. And I think the more that an organization grows, you cannot get away from having some type of structure or there is chaos. You do need some kind of leadership. It can't be 50, 100 people coming together singing Kumbaya. And so <laughs> there has to be some kind of structure to that because you do, you, there will be bad actors in that crowd somewhere. Everybody's not coming with the same motive. Everybody's not coming to worship. Everybody's not coming to fellowship. Everybody's not coming to praise the Lord and learn the word. Some people are coming to see what they could get, what they could take and what they could do. Yep. And so you do need structure and you do need some type of hierarchy. It doesn't have to be toxic. I think hierarchy gets a bad rap. Hierarchy by itself is not bad or toxic. It becomes bad and toxic when it's misused, abused, misappropriated, misrepresented. Hierarchy in and of itself is, is not bad. You know what I'm saying? It, it's, it's what people make it and what they do with it and how they abuse it and wield it and bend it 
to their own motives and um, objectives and desires that makes it that, if that makes sense. And I definitely hear you on that. And it's interesting because I feel like the tension I'm in in my organizing spaces, community organizing spaces, is the opposite, um, which is a lot of folks, people of color, queer folks, poor folks are like, we have never experienced a hierarchical system that hasn't been trying to do us harm for their profit. And so screw that. We're actively advocating for a non-hierarchical structure. And you're absolutely not wrong because non-hierarchical structures are so hard. And I think it's almost the opposite of First Samuel where, where they're like, we do not want a king anymore because the king has done nothing but yeah. tax us and steal our kids and put them to war and get them down killed. Down with the king. Right, down <laughs> with the king. Yeah. And so I want I just want to name like the reason people are pushing for non-hierarchy is because of stuff like this, because of stuff like Bruxy Cavey, because of stuff like John yeah. Howard Yoder, because of like people that we thought were our own people who when they get authority and not accountability do us harm because they can get away with it. So I think it's worth naming that. And there is also a robust conversation going on about, and non-hierarchy can also open spaces for people to be predatory if they're, because what it always comes down to is lack of accountability. Right. And non-hierarchical spaces, if they don't have structures of accountability, can lead to just as much harm. I just wanted to throw that in. Yeah, that's exactly right. And some of that, what I was going to say as well, like if someone is in a group and they're committed to like, like December was saying, I'm here to see what I can get, what I can get away with, they will find a way within that system, no matter what the system is, to do as much as they can, right, in in that way. But I think something also, there's an excellent documentary, which I think is still available on YouTube. You can watch it for free. It's called Kumari. And uh, it's so good. Have you seen it? Oh, it's so good. It's about this guy's... It will. It's so good, though. So it's a documentary filmmaker. He's Indian. And uh, he, he sets himself up as a fake sort of a guru, puts up a website, makes up all this nonsense about himself, and tries to basically, and he films himself, um, you know, going to these places, yoga studios, and leading people in meditations, and, and, and uh, you know, giving them, you know, wisdom and all this stuff. And how people immediately and instantly decide he is the guy, he is the guru, he has all wisdom. And within, within like one or two sessions, they're coming to this guy who's a complete fraud and asking him things like, should I, should I divorce my husband? Should I quit my job? Should I sell everything and move to and live in the desert? And like, he's, and it terrifies him. He's like, oh my gosh, these people will, I have them in the palm of my hand. They'll do anything I say. And I've been in those situations too with people, like you in groups of people and you, you, you realize, oh my gosh, I could go, I could if I wanted to. And I think you're either somebody who feels terror in that moment, like, oh crap. <laughs> or you're like, hey, uh, all right, right? Because I can get away with it. And, 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 you know, so I think those situations can breed the opportunity for that. And then the person in the moment, is often they have to make a decision. Are they going to do the right thing or are they going to do something really destructive and selfish? So I've got a theoretical question that I think applies, especially with some of the terminology that was used with the, with the proxy case, right? So people at first or the overseers, whoever they are, the church would said, no, no, it's not abuse. This was an affair because he, he slept with some women who were over the age of 18 that was presumably consensual. Um, obviously, the case with the minor is clear abuse. That's we're not we're not arguing about that. I'm not arguing about anything. I'm just asking a theoretical question. And so, 
can a leader, I guess anywhere, but especially in a church, and let's assume that the leader is unmarried. Um, Brooksy, in fact, was married and was cheating on his wife, in addition to abusing power. But if there's an unmarried leader, um, does this mean they can never have any relationships? Like the the sort of the power dynamic means that that makes um, like romance really difficult. And obviously, pastors should not be in a romantic relationship with anyone in their church. That's creepy and weird. Don't, all right, like we shouldn't we shouldn't be doing that. Um, but with uh, you know with like friendships with everything. So like when that position of of power, even when it's held with integrity it always opens itself up to these problems, right? So like the like person, so someone in authority, does that mean like if it's a president, does that mean they can't, and they're single, does that mean they can never ever date because everyone, they're in a relationship of power to every other person in the country? Uh, I don't think, I, I, I think that we have free will. And for the most part, there are some people that are in the earth that the scripture will say were born a eunuch. <laughs> I, I don't want to get you deep into that. But anyway, they don't have a problem with being alone or they don't have a problem with only serving the Lord for the rest of their life. And it, it does not bother them at all not to be able to do anything with anyone. But for the most part, m- most human beings were created for relationship. And so I don't, I don't, I don't see the point in denying any person in any level of leadership the opportunity to be in a fulfilling relationship. Now, the scripture talks about in the last days, there will be people that will be denying themselves. Y'all heard that scripture before? Will be denying themselves marriage and this and that and the other thing. And in that in that scripture, it makes me think of the Catholic priests and stuff like that, that take these vows to not get married and then they be screwing everything, moving. And so... Um, so I'm like, instead of taking a vow not to, not to be out here, just go ahead and get you a wife or a boyfriend or whatever you try to do, just stay away from the damn kids. And so, um, I, I think that pastors, preachers, ministers, priests, or whoever, if you, if you, if you, if you don't want to die alone, you shouldn't have to, but just like everyone else, you should be operating within your, you should be operating in self-control. And you definitely shouldn't be using the church, as a lot of pastors do, as your own personal harem or stable of, uh, you know, my mom has a name for this that is probably not politically correct, but she calls them temple hoes. You certainly shouldn't be <laughs> having a whole church full of hoes that you be circulating around. And you know what I'm saying? And you have your own personal selection of women to choose. I, I think that there's a line that can be drawn um, between that and between having a meaningful relationship with someone. I don't think anybody should be denied access and opportunity to, um, to, be, to love and to be loved, period. Uh, what whatever position you're in, it's just what how are you doing it and who are you doing it with, is the matter. Yeah, the who is really important. <laughs> yeah. I also believe in sex worker rights and therefore believe that temple hosts should be getting treated with dignity and respect instead Thank of getting you. handed and around it. by pastors and paid um, adequately. Yes, and paid <laughs> adequately. Very well. um, so yes. it's interesting because I. So having been a pastor who was single um, for a number of years. Um, I tended to work really hard to date people as far removed from church period as possible. I ended up with, I ended up dating somebody who was a member of a church that I was a member of. And we had extensive conversations around the ethics around that. Cause even though I was a member, 
of the church and not the pastor of it. I'm still a pastor. We did a lot of ethical discussion. We dated and it was still a mistake because even though I wasn't their pastor, I'm a pastor. And I think that that made it messy. So this is my uh, pronouncement to everybody that dating atheists is always the best strategy. (laughs) Words of wisdom on religious dating. You're welcome. Yes, become unequally yoked. Yes. My my question would be, why is it uh, that that religion is the only profession that 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 is an issue it's not it's not if mm-hmm. i have if i if i'm a doctor if i'm a lawyer if i'm a teacher if i'm whatever um no one's having a discussion about should you be able to get married should you be able to date well why is well, that only a thing in the in the in the in the church but if you're a teacher you shouldn't be dating your students right no so. that is true <laughs> uh, but we we we're, we're past that part we're past that part uh, our friend here uh, our friend here, they said, I was a member at the church and I was also a pastor, so that was a mistake. I need to understand, was, what part of that relationship was the mistake? That y'all just would, y'all just didn't click? Or the fact that you were a pastor made, I don't understand why that made it a mistake. What part of that made it a mistake? Now, if y'all just didn't work and he was an asshole or whatever, or his breast stank or he picked his nose too much and his feet is funky. Now, okay, y'all just didn't work. Or she or whoever it was, if she, you know what I'm saying, she cute, but she don't clean up good. She smell like fish sticks and tartar sauce or whatever the case, you know, whatever it was, I don't know what it was, but if it didn't work, then it didn't work. Sure. But why, if it was it related to the fact that you were a pastor and a member of the church, why was that a mistake? It, was that a mistake or was it something else? I just need to understand. And it's interesting because I'm, I'm aware that, uh, Katie, when you brought this up, you were like, it's also true for people in secular positions of power. What does it mean right. to date members of your staff? What does it mean right. to date, you know? Um, so for, for me, um, I wish it weren't the case because I'm a deeply non-hierarchical person, but um, the role of pastor ends up coming with a lot of stuff that gets projected onto it by the people around us, even if we don't want it to happen. And that shows up in relationship dynamics. Um, Absolutely. doesn't yeah. always have to. Um, I mean, I was friends with members of my congregation, but usually um, we were friends first. And when that wasn't the case, it was still a complicated and not fully uh, equal relationship because there are things that calling brings with it. I'm not sure. I'm probably being too vague. I wonder if other people have opinions. Anybody else have to date while being a pastor? I might have been the only one. I did. I passed for you 10 did. years. Yeah, yeah. And did you navigate, like, did you find it different than that? It was hard. It was hard for a few reasons. Only be, because you, you, that person is signing up for your lifestyle. Sometimes they don't know what that lifestyle is. And so it could be a mistake in that way that they didn't sign up for that. That definitely happened to me with one relationship. The first time he saw me pray over a gathering, he was like, oh, that's really a thing. Yeah. Yeah. And so they didn't sign up for that. They didn't sign up for your phone ringing at all time of the night. They didn't sign up for people showing up at your house needing groceries or gas money. You know what I'm saying? That's all kind of stuff that come where you have to get up and be somewhere at five o'clock in the morning and don't be back until late in the evening. Or, you know, a lot of people tugging at you, a lot of people in your face. You know, so if you're with somebody who's insecure, whether that's a man or a woman, and they can't tolerate a lot of people in your face hugging on you and stuff like that, not knowing that that's not, I don't like them and they don't like me like that. I'm just a pastor. They love me and I love them back. So if you're with somebody who's insecure and they can't handle that, they can't handle people in your circle and in your face, that could be, that could be a mistake. I could see where that could be a mistake and it could cause tension. 
So the one thing that I want to throw into the mix, because I think it has to do with this whole series, is it's definitely things about the lifestyle, but it's also what people bring into their relationship and their understanding of who a pastor is, which is where a lot of this abuse comes from, is like the people that the pastors we've been talking about, um, the people they've been exploiting, got pulled into that because of who they understand a pastor to be. That shows up, who people understand a pastor to be shows up in how they relate to us. Um, and I think that that is something we have to take really seriously. So I think I have another red flag, and this goes for evangelical, progressive, moderate churches. So we've named red flags, women not in leadership, right? Sort of these charismatic personalities. Bruxy kind of looks like an overgrown youth pastor, and it's a very cultivated hippie youth pastor look. I Honestly, I watch out for that. Because Mm. that kind of like carefully curated, I'm so cool. Yeah. I just eat granola all day. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Good is it a red flag? For it's not, it's not like some people that's just genuinely their personality. That's cool. But like it actually is a red flag that I look out for because it can, it can speak to the like, we're such good friends. And then that can lead to the abuse. Right. And what Especially I, what I, yeah. What I understand is that the, um, the first woman that came forward, mm-hmm. the abuse happened during counseling sessions. Oh. So, right. So again, there's this, that. Yeah, there's this level yeah. of vulnerability and she's emotional and she's probably crying and she's sharing something painful and then he comes over to give her a hug and then, you know what I mean? So it's it's this additional level of creepy and sick. Yeah, and, and, taking, and so this is like, again, it boils down to the power dynamic, right? There's this power dynamic and the, the person is being vulnerable in the presence of someone that she believes is safe and cares about, and it only cares about her. And, but she's not, she's in the presence of someone who's going to take advantage of that and, and did, and, and then did it more than once, uh, with more than one person. And so I think this is actually a chance for us to, uh, to name, and we've been trying every episode to name the sheroes and heroes and theros of these stories. And the woman that you're talking about, the church actually apologized to her for not believing her and as well they should. There were numerous other women who came forward. There was a, um, a woman who came forward anonymously and whose story got traction with the Toronto Star and the newspaper made sure to bring a lot of attention to this story. Um, all of those are heroes. I do want to note that the, the anonymous person, uh, who went by Alana did get trolled and her ident- her public identity was leaked. And the reason I want to bring that up is because we also have opportunities to be allies of the sheroes and heroes and theros of these stories. We can show up well with them. We can show up well for them. We can, um, we can distract the trolls. We can, um, we can shut down people. If the trolling's online, we can report accounts that are being harassing. We actually have a role to play in supporting the, the survivors who are making sure that this doesn't happen again. And I wanted to name uh, that as an opportunity we have. Shonda, you, you generally lead us in the final condemnation. That's right. And so I think, I thought you had covered it with your fuck that and fuck Christian <laughs> that counseling. That was a spontaneous, um, was a spontaneous was awesome. proclamation. <laughs> and so I, I, I think, yeah, I think it's worth saying, fuck Bruxy Cavey. 
Here, here. <laughs> Amen to that, Katie. And all listen, thank you for checking in today. Thank you for uh, listening to Heretic Happy Hour. I want you to go over to heretichappyhour.com and see what we got over there. We got some episodes, some quiz, some freebies, the bookstore. We got the shop. Get you a t-shirt. You need to walk around with a t-shirt that says you're a heretic because why not? You know what I'm saying? So go onto the website and check us out. Get the t-shirt take a selfie, and then post it in Heresy After Hours. So this is our Facebook group for heretics of all stripes and flavors. We have a couple of thousand members. We talk about all things deconstruction. And uh, have we announced Choircast? Uh, I don't know. I don't think so. Can I like like, to do that? make a soft announcement? Okay. Yeah, sure. So there's Choircast. So the choir, our, our producer of this podcast, has a whole conglomerate of podcasts. And so you're going to see a lot more faces in Heresy After Hours with contributors from all the many con- uh, podcasts that choir sponsors. Uh, so take a selfie, buy a t-shirt, buy a t-shirt first, then take the selfie in the t-shirt, then post it in Heresy After Hours. Absolutely. That's on Facebook. I don't know if I mentioned that. That's a Facebook group. <laughs> it is on Facebook, yes. Um, and we just want to real quick say, all of you who support us on Patreon, thank you so much. We love you. We appreciate you very, very much. Uh, you make what we do possible and uh, much more enjoyable. And we love recording bonus stuff we put over there. And if you don't support us yet on Patreon, would you please go to patreon.com slash hour and go over there and sign up for something, whatever you can afford on a monthly basis. And uh, you will unlock so much great, cool, amazing stuff, including access at any level you sign up to the uh, private Heretic Happy Hour Facebook group. And we have a lot of fun over there. As always, like, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you love us, again, it's the Heretic Happy Hour. If you hate us, it's the official Southern Baptist Convention podcast. Thank you for your reviews. (laughs) What? (laughs) Well, I figure if they don't like us, they they should review it on the Southern Baptist Convention podcast site instead of on our iTunes. (laughs) I know that. (laughs) Okay, okay. Is there a Southern Baptist podcast? I wonder. I don't know. I should have done the research.